one of my plans has backfired. I uh, used, I have this box of instant oatmeal in the pantry here that I eat at work sometimes. I do not like the banana-flavored one. So I end up with a box full of banana-flavored ones. And so this today gave me, if you're just listening to the audio version of this on a podcast or something, you're wondering, what in the heck is he talking Go back and watch the YouTube version. You'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, but um, I thought this is a good use for this gross banana oatmeal is I'll have the kids put it into this coffee pot. Except now up here, it smells like banana oatmeal. <laughs> so I'm a little nauseated. But we shall persevere, right? Okay. <laughs> Say again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We are returning today to the book of James, which we spent five weeks studying before Lent came. Let's just recap where we are. Today we'll be in chapter 2. Let's just recap where we've been. We've learned that James was the little brother of our Lord Jesus, but that he wasn't a believer in Jesus till after Jesus died and rose again. At that point, he became a, a mega believer, and he was known as one of the holiest, most devout men in all Jerusalem. He practically lived at the temple, praying and praying and preaching and preaching. His dream, James' dream, was that all of his Jewish brothers and sisters would come to understand that Jesus was the promised Savior, the Savior that their scriptures had promised. Well, it was not to be. In fact, James was murdered one day while preaching this truth to a crowd. He was on a wall, and they came up behind him, pushed him off the wall of the temple, and he fell and died. Uh, James was respected, though, because he was so holy because he was so devout, so committed to Christ, he became very, very respected amongst the earliest Christians. Remember, all the first Christians were Jews. Some even called him the bishop of Jerusalem. So here in the book of James that appears in your Bibles, we have one of the earliest records of a letter written to Christians he addresses the letter to the, to the Jewish Christians who are dispersed all over the world. And we have one of the earliest letters of, look, guys, this is how you be the church. He says pretty much that very thing. At the end of chapter 1, if you recall, he says, he's talking about true religion. And he says, those who consider themselves religious but don't keep a tight rein on their tongue deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows and their distress and to keep oneself by being polluted by the world. That is a startling phrase, teaching. Because do you suppose there are a few Christians nowadays who, if James was their pastor, might have some tough questions to answer? I think so. I think so. James, in, his, in this letter, is teaching us something. You remember a couple of years ago, 
uh, I handed out little key tags, and they were different colors. And I had you write on one key tag, two, well, on each key tag, I had you write a fancy theological word. Those fancy theological words are in your bulletin on your notes page today. But on one key tag, I had you write orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right belief, right knowledge, right thinking. On the other key tag, I said, okay, now write this word, orthopraxy. Orthopraxy, like the word sounds, so it means right practice or right living. Some people think that the book of James says is all about works, and that's not true. The book of James simply understands that true faith Remember, I had you take those key tags, and then you put them both on the same key ring. True faith holds both of those together. It's right belief and right practice or right living. You can't have one without the other. I saw a bumper sticker once, probably more than once. It says, kindness is my religion. It sounds nice, but how do you know what being kind is if you don't know God, who is the inventor of goodness and kindness? If you've got orthodoxy but not orthopraxy, you're no different from a devil, James will say. We'll study that scripture next week. You know the right stuff about God. But knowing that stuff about God hasn't changed the way that you live. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, both are evidence of saving faith. This is James. James, he almost doesn't even have to teach this. He just assumes that you know this. So let's not create false distinctions and try to separate the two. Oh, you are into works righteousness. Oh, you are holy roller know all your theology. The church needs it all. And each of us needs both. True belief and true living. Let's move on to chapter 2. I'm going to go ahead and say a blessing over the reading of the word and then we'll read and then we'll see what we glean from chapter 2 today. Uh, bow your hearts with me please. Dear Father, uh, it's already been said up here today. I'll say it again though. Thank you so much for speaking, for not being a God who remains uh, at a distance, but a God who comes to us. You've come to us, and speaking of, uh, of word and deed, you've come to us by giving us your word, but you've also entered into this uh, ugly, sin-stained creation uh, in order to save it. What a gift that is, that you did that for us. You did that because you so loved the world. That's why you gave your only son, so that anyone who believes, who trusts, who has faith in your son will not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank you for these promises. God, teach us, please, from this letter from James, written so long ago, but oh so relevant today. Please open our eyes and our hearts, Lord, and shape us to look more and more like Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. The scripture reads like this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. 
and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing the fine clothes and say, here, sit here is a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of heaven he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and you're convicted as a law breaker. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do commit adultery, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Now, if I read that passage to you, and then I say to you in your small group, or I put you around tables, I say, okay, discuss. I know exactly what would happen because I've done it a dozen times before. I've been in groups that have discussed this passage many times before. What happens is we end up talking about people in church who come to church wearing fancy clothes and people who come to church wearing not so fancy clothes or drunk or bumble and stumble and fools or whatever it may be. And we say, we say, well, we must be okay because so long as we don't favor the rich too much over the, uh, the, the poor or the uh, ugly guy or the stinky gal, then we think we're doing okay. As long as we're welcoming to visitors for 90 minutes a week, we've heard the word that the Lord has for us from James chapter 2. Check that box. We can move on to the next thing. Pastor, thank you very much. Hold your horses, however. The rich-poor section of this passage is an illustration. The rich-poor is, now here's an example of what I'm talking about. The rich poor is not the thing that James is talking about himself, or the main point. The main point that James is talking about is do not show favoritism. Favoritism comes in all shapes and sizes. It looks all different ways. Here's an example, but that example is not meant to be the whole kit and caboodle. So in order to help us study what he means by not showing favoritism, I'm going to take the example out. I could do it either way. I could zero in on the example and preach a sermon on that. For today's sermon, I'm going to take the example out, and I'm going to condense the scripture just to hear the teaching without that example. Make sense? He says, then, he would say, my brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you're, you're, you sin and you're convicted as the law's lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. 
speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, the first thing when I read the passage that way, the first thing that hits me right between the eyes is how James has elevated the sin of favoritism. If you want to take notes, I would have you write, I would have you jot this down. The sin of favoritism, James is teaching us, the sin of favoritism is serious. This is serious. This is not, oh, by the way, kind of stuff. You want to talk about orthodoxy, orthopraxy, I'm getting you both right now. Sin of favoritism is serious. If you know Jesus, you best not be guilty of that sin, or you best be working really hard against it. That sin, keeping it at bay. If you're guilty of favoritism, if you're guilty of favoritism, that is, if you break any part of the law, you are a law breaker. Is that what hit you the first time I read the text with the rich poor example in the middle? Probably not. Favoritism, really? Favoritism on par with adultery, murder? But look, if God's law is how you are to live, imagine I had, uh, do I have an example up here? Oh, a drumstick. Imagine I have God's law as a perfect wooden rod or a, a drumstick. This is what it looks like, if there are no nicks or dents in it, that to follow God's law perfectly. Now maybe over here, is the adultery, and here is the murder. So if I commit murder, I'm taking a big knife and chop. I'm making a big dent into God's law. I am a lawbreaker, right? Now let's say we put jealousy here, envy here. Those are the same thing, aren't they? Jealousy here, uh, gossiping here, showing favoritism here. I come with my knife and chop. What's the difference? I'm a lawbreaker, right? I've damaged, I've done violence to God's law. And one day, James says, I'm going to give an answer to God. Why did you damage my law in that way? Why did you do such violence? to the goodness, the good plan that I showed you. All of us, all of us are going to stand before him and answer that question one day. James brings in two very interesting words at this point of the conversation, mercy and judgment. Mercy, and what do they have to do with favoritism? Douglas Moo, theologian, scholar, author, he points out that favoritism, the word in your English Bible, favoritism, comes from a Greek word that means to receive the face. To receive the face. And Moo says this. He says, to receive the face is to make judgments based on external considerations, such as physical appearance, social status, or race. Then Moo says, this, 
God never does. You're standing in judgment over someone when you draw conclusions about that person based upon the mask that they are wearing. Let me tell you what I mean when I say the mask that they wear. If you have a copy of the bulletin, I have placed a photo on the front, a photo of Venetian carnival masks. If you've been to my house, you've seen a few of these. They hang above my piano. Venetian carnival masks have a history that goes back into antiquity. Venice was a very, very wealthy city at a time when the rest of the world was not. It was also a very, very small city. So people, um, honest people and dishonest people, found that, wearing, that, that remaining anonymous was very helpful. If you're walking down the street and everybody knows, oh, there goes rich so-and-so, you're probably going to get mugged. But on the other hand, look what it did for people who were of lower classes. All of a sudden, they, they, they could wear masks, and now they could take part in this wealthy economy. A nobleman might be doing business with a commoner, and you know what? Didn't care. Neither one of them would care, actually. They don't want to know. Women could gain access to the world of business and commerce long before that would become common. So in some ways, the Venetian mask was a way to protect the wealth of the city, and it also helped them to grow the wealth of the city. But then it evolved. People figured out, if I can be anonymous, I can do whatever I want. And there's no social consequences. Nobody's going to shun me. Nobody's going to shame me. And so all kinds of vices started to take over underneath these masks. People would do all kinds of robbery, thieving, carousing uh, late at night, all kinds of sexual immorality, drinking, The Catholic Church, on more than one occasion, came into Venice by force and outlawed the mask. Then there would be a series of riots and people pushing against it, and so the church would say, okay, you can wear masks during this period only, during this period only. Well, so today we have a tradition that, they have a tradition that the period leading up to Ash Wednesday, right, Fat Tuesday being the culmination of it, that's where they wear their masks and then they take them off. Kind of an interesting story. But the Venetian masks are a parable for today's Bible lesson. You don't have to have a paper mache covering to hide who you really are from the world. You are already hiding yourself. Whatever face you're showing me, that's not the real you. Not really. I'm seeing you through a mask. That mask might be something you've put on, like when you laugh at my jokes, even though you think they're really annoying. You put that mask on, maybe for my benefit. That mask might be something other people have put on you. Something other people, they, maybe you've been mistreated 
or abused, or they, other people have told you what you can't do, and you've assumed that identity. Your mask could be wealth, or it could be poverty, such as in James' example. The mask can be race, or beauty, or disfigurement, youth, or old age. The mask can communicate, your mask that is, can communicate a desire to fit in, or it can communicate a desire to stand out. But in each case, the mask is covering up far more than it is revealing. God isn't buying it. To some extent, I'm buying it because it's all you're showing me. God isn't buying it. God sees the you that you present to the world. He knows that's only a mask. He knows exactly what you look like beneath that mask. He takes it off. If you stop and really think about that for a minute, it'll make you scared. There is nothing you can hide from him. There is nothing about you that he does not know. You have never had a thought that's been hidden from him. You have never looked down on someone. You have never lost your temper even inside. You've never envied someone. You've never lusted after someone that he wasn't fully aware. Mercy triumphs over judgment, James says. See, then just as you're about to despair and get really worried or feel really ashamed about what God sees beneath that mask that you wear, just when you're about to get really despaired, you are sure you'll never be lovable, God makes this proclamation. It's good news. He says, child, that sin you're wearing, that's a mask too. That's a mask too. That's not really you either. And he says, okay, the way you present yourself to a world, take that mask off, throw it away. That's a joke. That's fake. He sees the you that you keep hidden from the world, the you that you're ashamed of. But then he takes that mask off of you again, revealing something, maybe just a kernel, something that is left, there's something that God created in God's image and something that God declared very, very good, something that God loves so much that he would leave the riches of heaven and come into this world to suffer and die, to restore, to bring back to life, to bring back to its full beauty and glory. And this is made possible. This is made possible by the cross. On the cross, Jesus was taking that mask. Well, he, well okay, he was taking the mask to anybody who will believe, to anybody who has, who has ears to listen and eyes to see. He'll take that mask that you like to wear, and he throws that one away. Get rid of that. That's rubbish. That, quit that garbage. Quit that nonsense. But then he takes that other mask, the sinful mask, the mask that you're ashamed of, and he takes it on himself. He places it on himself. and declares you righteous, and then on to your core identity, 
Remember that core, beautiful being created in the image of God Almighty, declared very, very good. Created to be a forever king or forever queen, lowercase k, lowercase q, living in the kingdom. On that being, he places the mask of his righteousness, an impression of his record and his holiness, and it's, it's fused to you, and it can never be dis destroyed, it can never be marred, it can never be made ugly, it can never be detached, taken off of you. This is how God sees you now and forever and forever and forever. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the gospel. Now, if that's true, and it is, three implications for us today. First is quit putting more masks on top of the mask of Christ's righteousness. When you choose sin, you're covering up Christ's righteousness. You're pretending to be what you're not. You died to that, man. Don't put that filth back on yourself. Stop covering up Christ's righteousness in you. Number two, if other people are trying to put a mask on you, you don't accept it. If they're trying to say you're no good, you're not worthy, you're not worth it, don't accept it. It's a lie. They're trying to put a mask. They're trying to cover up Christ's righteousness. They're trying to cover up what Jesus has made you. And don't you let them. And number three, if this is what Jesus has done for you, how can you look at anyone else, anyone else based upon the mask that you see? How can you do that? If this is what Jesus has done for you, how can you look at anyone else based upon the mask that they're showing you? You can't. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 